Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things they do. I'm Farley. I'm Annie. And I'm David. And for today's episode, we've teamed up with Pint of Science Australia, a festival that brings scientists out of the lab to speak about their research. In the old and pre-pandemic days, the event was often at the local pub, but last year things had to move online and it actually worked so well they decided to do the same again in 2021. But that doesn't mean you can't crack open a beer from the comfort of your home while you listen to this episode. And today we're talking to Dr. Amanda Franklin about shiny and colorful beetles. Uh, So I'm Amanda Franklin. I'm a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in the Stuart Fox lab, and I research vision and colour in beetles. So how did you first become interested in science? Well, that's a good question. I, I always liked science, and in high school I thought, like I did pretty well in high school, so I picked all the really hard ones, like chemistry and physics, And then I realised I hated physics and switched to biology. And from there, I decided I'd be a doctor because that's what you do if you get good grades in high school. And then after one, (laughs) I didn't get into medicine. And then after one semester of doing biomedical science, I realised absolutely not. And I really loved the zoology subject. So then I completely switched and wanted to do marine science and just kept doing that since then. Well, now beetles, but marine science, but quite some time. So how did that transition from marine science to beetles happen? Uh, I kind of fell into that. And to be honest, I didn't really, wasn't super excited about beetles when I started. I was more excited about the lab and uh, Melbourne Uni and the research questions uh, because I really did want to stick with marine science. Um, But after the first couple of weeks when I started in the lab, um, there was a bunch of boxes of beetles that had been borrowed from um, the Australian insect collection. And I was looking through those boxes and I realised how amazing beetles actually are. They pretty much hooked me straight away. I had no idea. You could see there's like beetles covered in little colourful bristly hairs and there's some that just look like an oil sheen and others are just these amazing iridescent rainbows. I just had no clue. And so instantly I got, I got hooked by the shining colorful things, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about ecology is once you start observing, you realize how beautiful things are, especially with something like a beetle, you could just look at, like look over it for so long. And then when you actually sit down and focus on it, it's like, okay, I I like this. This is pretty. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, as I didn't realize that there were all these beetles just out around Melbourne and I mean, around Australia too, but as a kid, I played outside all the time and I looked for bugs and I don't remember seeing these, except for the occasional really bright stag beetle or Christmas beetle. I don't remember seeing all these really bright, amazing beetles around Melbourne, but they're all there. You just have to look for them. <laughs> Do you find you see them more now and notice them more when you're out and about? Yeah, much more often. It annoys people when I go on hikes sometimes. I'm like, oh, there's a beetle. Oh, there's one. Look in this crowd. There's a beetle. <laughs> I'll say I'm a bird watcher and I've been out with entomologists before you guys are worse than bird watchers because what I will cover in like, you know, okay, you guys cover in about a hundred meters because that's infinite in terms of bugs. And yeah, insects. it's true. <laughs> I bring my, I have a um, foldable 
uh, net. And so I can just shake flowers and trees as I go. <laughs> <laughs> Hacking must be very slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why beetles? Why are they an interesting animal to study? Uh, so one of the, the main things is beetles are super diverse. Uh, one of my favorite stats that I've learned is that if you could get one individual of every species in a bag and then except for not microbes but everything else plants and fungi and stuff in a bag and if you put your hand in you have a 25 percent chance of pulling out a beetle so there's just ridiculous <laughs> numbers of beetles um, and then there's so many and then they're so diverse as well like often you might think of little black ones and things um, but there's some that for example Example, bee, um, there's one that a beetle is the fastest runner um, of any insect, I think, and it can, if you do it by body lengths, I should say. So it's very small. So if it, if you run in body lengths, the speed of body lengths, um, it's the fastest one. And the cool thing is it runs so fast that its eyes can't capture enough photons, so it's blind when it runs. <laughs> and so it runs and stops and runs and stops. Um but yeah, it's yeah, super diverse. And then, so there's all these different color effects, um, iridescence, mirror-like, glossy, um, pigments and, uh, structural color, which is how the colors are created. Um, diversity in vision. There's just, there's like a beetle for everything pretty much. I can't believe it's one in four chance of grabbing a beetle. I know it's ridiculous. Outrageous. <laughs> yeah. I think they've described maybe, 400,000 species, but they think there's more like 1.5 million species. Wow. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. God, we're so insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> when you're going, I guess that's why they actually are all around Melbourne. <laughs> you just need to look for them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever hope you'll find one of those new species as well when you're poking around and with your net? I do. Yeah. Uh, there's been a few times I've gone somewhere remote and cause I'm, I'm new, I've worked with beetles for two years. So I still consider myself new. And I'm like, this isn't one that I'm, I've seen before. And then I talk to the experts and they're like, Oh, that that's blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find one one day. Surely. <laughs> yeah. One can hope. <laughs> what specifically do you with beetles? So what is your focus? Um, mostly vision and color. So I, I'm very interested in both and how they interact. Um, so there's a lot of, um, like the color of an animal, um, if it's a signal or camouflage, how that evolves will depend on what the receiver can see. Um, and then vice versa, what the, the animal needs to see will depend on what it needs to, like what it's looking at food and finding mates and things. So I'm interested in the evolution of both. Um, and at the moment, we're doing a lot of work on what we call dynamic um, colours. So they're, um, they're ones that kind of change with viewing angle. So if you think of something iridescent, if you move around, the colour changes. Or uh, really glossy things, if you move around, the gloss moves on the, the animal or the leaf or whatever it is. Um, and because they're more dynamic, they're a bit harder to study in in terms of trying to understand how the animal perceives it and what the function might be. So we actually don't know too much about the function of these dynamic colours. I imagine that gets tricky to measure as well, right? Like how do you measure how 
iridescent or how shiny or glossy something is. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's a paper published only, I think 2018, which has got a really good technique for measuring these things. But that, yeah, that's only a couple of years ago that we've worked out this technique and you have to have pretty expensive equipment and basically you're shining light at a very specific angle onto the surface of the animal and then collecting the light at a very specific angle um, in the other direction. And then you do a whole heap of different combinations. And by doing that, you can get an understanding of the degree of iridescence and also the degree of glossiness. But it's a lot of measurements and we haven't really worked out how to quantify it until recently. And then also you probably have to look at the idea of how are the animals themselves seeing that, right? Because what you're measuring is what we would take, like we'd interpret it as, but also how the animals interpret it. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to, the measurements, I guess, are trying to be independent of how we would see it, but then trying to link that to how the animal would see it is really tricky. So there's a whole heap of different things going on there um, in terms of what they detect. So the photoreceptors in the eye, the different wavelengths that they might see, but then also the speed of the eye. So if you think you're not, you're always collecting something, but um, like a good example is when you watch an ad on TV of a car and the wheel looks like it's turning backwards. And that's because there's like 24 frames or whatever the frame is in the video footage. So it looks like the wheel's turning backwards. Well, if other animals, um, their speed of the eye might be slower than ours or different to ours. And so then how these dynamic colours change with viewing angle and stuff will look very different to them. And then as well, um, their, their resolution, so the details that they can see. So we might see some like a really sharply defined gloss spot on an animal, but it might not look that sharply defined to another animal if they have pretty bad resolution. Um, and then all this, how they process all this as well. So you can look at their visual physiology to get an idea of how they might see it, but then all the neural processing behind that might do some other things as well. So it's, it's really hard to work out how they might perceive these dynamic colours. Yeah, it seems like such a simple question in some ways. It's like, okay, what, what do you see and what is it for? And then just the sub-questions and questions you have to go through to just get to that answer is crazy. Yeah, exactly. It's really complex, but it's, I find it so fascinating to think that what we see, all these other animals are not seeing, and then they're seeing other things that we can't see as well. And um, they can all do what they need to do. Like a dragonfly has worse resolution than us, but it's an amazing hunter at catching prey and flying really fast around. So it's pretty amazing how they've evolved to do what they need to do. I just love that your job puts you in like perfect position to when an alien lands, you'll be the one to go and talk to the alien. <laughs> Cause you're like, I know how to do it. I got this. <laughs> We've been saying yeah. this for years. <laughs> yeah. Been trying to talk to jewel beetles for so long. <laughs> so a lot of what you've been looking at recently in terms of these dynamic colors. Um, so one of those things is mirrors, right? Like how, how a shiny surface might reflect stuff, I guess, is it? So, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what that kind of surface might be for? Yeah, sure. So the, um, if you've ever seen some of the beetles that look like little gold mirrors or uh, little silver mirrors, or if you Google mirror beetle, it should um, some of them should come up. Uh, there's a lot of Christmas beetles. 
There's also uh, butterfly and moth chrysalises that just look like mirrors. The reflection in them is almost perfect. Um, you'll be able to find, if you Google it, you can find um, images where you can see the photographer reflected in the beetle or the butterfly chrysalis. So they they look exactly like a little mirror. Um, but we, we don't really know why. Uh, if you look at them in a museum, they look extremely bright and shiny and reflective. And so you might think it could be something to do with communication or getting attention for some reason. Uh, but on the flip side, there's been um, predictions that it could be used for camouflage. Uh, so it's like reflects the surrounding environment. So then it will match the background better because it's reflecting things that it's sitting there. Uh, and this has been shown in, in the marine environment. Uh, so in the, the pelagic zone, which is like in the middle of the water column where everything's blue, really silvery fish actually blend in with the background really well because they just reflect the blue that looks, that matches the background. Uh, but it's never been looked at in terrestrial systems where there's a lot, it's a lot more complex with different trees and plants and branches or flowers. Uh, you know, the background is much more complex than just the blue ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've been trying to understand if the mirror-like um, appearance could actually be acting as camouflage. Yeah, that seems like a really neat solution, right? Like you've got an animal that's moving between different environments rather than trying to have to have colours that match everything and just make yourself really shiny and then you look like everywhere you go. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea. And so that would be really cool if that was happening. Um, it would give them camouflage in a lot of different conditions and maybe even camouflage while they're moving. Um, but our preliminary, well, the data that we've collected uh, doesn't really look like this is what's happening. Uh, we conducted a, a pretty massive study of making fake beetles and we, uh, well, we had two parts to it and we got humans to uh, try to find these fake beetles and some looked like little mirrors and others were just um, the exact same colour but diffuse, which means reflecting light evenly in all directions. So they didn't look like a mirror at all. Um, and humans could find them both equally easily. There was absolutely no difference um, between the two treatments. And then we did the same with birds, put these little clay beetles all through a forest and, again, absolutely no difference in predation attempts by the birds. So it seems like it's a neat idea, but it might not actually be happening in this case. Oh, that's frustrating. That sounds like the perfect idea. <laughs> yeah, but if you want, like it's frustrating to get negative results, but these are ridiculously negative, like, they're almost identical. So at least <laughs> perfect. Yeah. yeah. If you're gonna get it, you want to get it like this. Yeah. If you're gonna fail, fail, fail perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Not ambiguous. Yeah, exactly. Yep. One of the parameters we measured was uh the number of beetles that humans could detect. And we had 36 people go through, they had to find 12 beetles each, and there was only uh, two different in total. So I think 140 diffuse beetles were found and 138 mirror beetles or something. It was very similar. Wow. That's yeah. 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 Um, I do love that, that the idea of the mirror reflection and camouflage is literally the entire basis of the movie Invisible Man, the new one. Oh, I haven't heard of that. <laughs> yeah. They use mirrors and he has like a suit on and that's how he's able to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and then Amanda's like, that wouldn't work. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, you can literally now, you should write a review saying this is, this is absolute crap. 
you know, although there is, there are some really awesome pictures online of a hunter hiding behind um, uh, a mirror and you just cannot, it works really well. You can't even see the edges of the mirror. So it worked for them, but I guess that's a perfect man-made mirror. It's a little bit different to a shiny round beetle. Yeah. I like how it's always interesting hearing these kind of research projects summarised too because I was around when Amanda and everyone else in the lab was making these beetles and it was such a massive task just making so many of these little clay beetles and painting them and spraying them so they're the perfect shininess. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually very hard to get a mirror-like effect it took a very long time to work out how to do it we spoke i have a friend who works in the automotive industry so we spoke to him we spoke to people at model shops because lots of people come in painting model airplanes and cars we had a lot of help it's very hard how did you do it in the end what was the the perfect mirror effect uh so we really wanted to just paint it direct on the clay but we worked out that the clay was just too porous so it would never create a really smooth surface that you need to create the mirror effect so we made the clay beetles and then poured really thin layer of resin over the top and so when you pour the resin on it kind of drips off the side of the beetle so it's perfectly smooth and then you can get a chrome paint and airbrush that over the top and then we were making green beetles to match real life beetles and then you can spray a thin layer of green over the top of that. So it's a long process. <laughs> and the, the other tricky part was we wanted the diffuse beetles to be exactly the same, so the non-mirror-like beetles to be exactly the same um, with the same paint and everything. So to do that, we sanded them to remove the, surface, the smoothness of the surface of the resin. So we had to sand um about 500 beetles before painting them as well <laughs> how many did you make in total i we we did not count but i reckon at least it was over a thousand i reckon we created about a thousand five hundred oh my god that's yeah. so many so see, had some really good volunteers is my guess we did and yeah. he was a volunteer Oh, well, Annie helped us and we had um, the whole lab helped us make these beetles. I think about 10 of us were making beetles. <laughs> you know, at least scientists need some, you know, what is it, the right side brain every once in a while? We need to, need to flex that muscle sometimes. It's <laughs> probably a good thing for scientists. Yeah, exactly. Better yeah. than sitting in front of a computer all day. Yeah, exactly. It was quite fun. There was lots of, yeah, listening to music in the lab in a big group with snacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was much better than if we had to do it ourselves or in shifts or something. It was a big team effort, so that was nice. <laughs> yeah. So besides mirroring, what other forms of kind of sing sig signaling and camouflage have you looked at? Um, so in the Beatles, we haven't done much else with camouflage or signaling at the moment, mostly trying to look into um, – well, some of my other studies at the moment are looking at uh, evolution of colour. So there's some effects that seem to pop up across a lot of different beetle species. Um, so there's a lot of beetles that are red, green and blue. So within the same species, there's red, red individuals, green individuals and blue individuals. Uh, so I'm trying to work out if that's, Coevolution. So if they all come to the same, this same polymorphism, which means multiple 
um, multiple traits within the same species um, in the same way. And so we're trying to understand why this would happen and how it would happen. Do you have some ideas? Have an idea of how. It's a bit simpler, the how question. So we think um, uh, they're all structural colours. So that means that the colour is produced uh, by tiny little structures in the cuticle of the beetle. And so these structures are on the scale of the same wavelength as light. Uh, so they're very small structures. And um, a simple way of producing these different colours is layers in the cuticle. And if the layers are more closely spaced together, they'll be blue, or if they're further apart, then they can be red. So we think that they're probably all doing this polymorphism in the same way. So they'll have closer space layers for blue, slightly further apart for green, and then more further apart for red. Uh, so it's just an easy, well, a relatively easy change between the colours. Um, but why is much trickier. So I, we were thinking maybe environmental things, but we found examples of where um, there's much, much more diversity in colour in cooler areas and less in hotter areas, but then we found the flip side as well in other places. Uh, so at the moment we're not really finding anything, any consistencies to show us why this might be the case. So that one's going to be much trickier to work out. And I guess there's the question of the mirrors as well too. Like if it's not for camouflage, then what is it for? Yeah, exactly. Um, we have some ideas about that, but again, not really sure. It could be a completely non-visual function, um, so something to do maybe with thermoregulation. Uh, if the mirrors are reflecting a lot of light, maybe it helps keep the beetle cool. Mm. Um, Again, the mirrors are created by structures in the cuticle, so maybe these structures um, are actually just providing strength or flexibility um, and then it just results in the mirror-like effect. Or it's very smooth, so it might help with um, repelling dust or water or something like that. So it could be a non-visual function and if the visual aspect of it isn't actually resulting in... Um, like reducing survival in any way, then it could just stick around despite looking bright to us. I like the idea that these mirror surfaces are kind of like just beetles carrying around a little umbrella. <laughs> yeah, that would be very cute. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be so funny if we found out and it was just that. It's just so unromantic. You're like, nah, it's just structural. Simple as that. Just some dust. It just clears the dust off a little better. Yeah. Like they create these really intricate things that have, you know, people have used for decorations and jewelry and everything for years. Like, eh, it's functional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, were you trying to get more at the iridescence work before with that question though? No, no, not specifically. No. So, but we can, we can talk about that more as well if you'd like to. So I guess we've done this uh, paper recently talking about when iridescence might be uh, useful as a signal, uh, versus other times when it might not be a signal at all. Uh, at the moment, we don't have any uh, experiments testing some of these predictions that we're making, but I think it's a really cool idea that these really bright and amazing colours and we just assume that it must be for signalling because it's so bright and beautiful and, you know, changes colour with viewing angle. They're actually not always for communication. Um, in some cases, it actually might help with camouflage um, or maybe there's some other function as well, thermoregulation or something like that. But in many situations, they'd actually be a pretty bad 
signal and wouldn't be useful for communicating uh, with other animals, partly because they change so much. And so if you want to send a good signal, it's better to be clear, not changeable. So it wouldn't be a great signal if you want to really clearly tell another animal like, hey, come mate with me or, um, you know, something like that. <laughs> That's interesting. So because it changes so much, it might mean that it's more likely things could get lost in translation essentially between who you're trying to communicate to and, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we there's some a study recently, uh, last year I think, that showed that the iridescence of uh a jewel beetle actually helped it camouflage from a predator. And so that might partly be because it's so changeable, it makes it really hard for the, the predator to identify that that's actually a little beetle there. Um, so it could actually hamper or disrupt any object recognition from the predator and help the prey actually hide. Whereas a few of the iridescent things that we know of that are signals they actually don't change color quite so much with viewing angle. So there's different adaptations that the animal has that means that if you move the same amount, the color will stay the same or there won't be as big of a color change as you would expect from some of the other really iridescent colors. Interesting. Yeah. Basically think of like hummingbirds because they can control it. And so they can do really deliberate signals versus, yeah, as you're saying, a beetle. It's just yeah. really based on where the light's coming from. Exactly. And hummingbirds are some of the, the best example that we've got. Uh, some of them will like do their dives. The males will do their dives towards a female in the position relative to the sun to make sure that the sun's shining on the, the, um, the colorful feathers that it has in the exact right angle so that the female will see it in the way that he wants. So they have a lot of adaptations to try to make sure it is a more stable signal. That's interesting. I kind of love the idea that they could use it as disruption. Like such a cool idea of using um, iridescence as a disruptor, just kind of making them lose focus on you as you kind of scramble through, maybe even blindly, like your blind <laughs> beetle, because you're just running. So it's like, please, <laughs> son, hit me here. <laughs> exactly. I think it's really cool. And I'd love to test it further and see if it actually improves camouflage when you're moving. Uh, so there are some studies that seem to think it would. Um, so because it, the color's changing as you're moving and as the predator's moving, then maybe you could get like, uh, I guess I should take a step back. If you are camouflaged purely by background matching, so just a static color, um, maybe you perfectly match the color of a tree trunk. As soon as you move, you kind of disrupt your whole illusion and you're, you're quite obvious. And so some of those camouflage techniques um, are not super effective for moving prey. They lose their camouflage when they move. So it'd be really cool to look at how well iridescence actually um, protects the animal while it's moving and if it's a benefit for moving prey too. Yeah. Do you think that could be the same for the mirror beetles as well too, that it's quite different when they're moving? Yeah, so that could be happening um, and that would be really interesting to test. Um, it, again, um, so I guess the mirror effect, when it's moving, there'll be like intensity flashes of light and dark um, with the gloss and that it's reflecting so much light. And we do know that a lot of predators use what's called luminance vision or achromatic vision where they that's just detecting how light or dark something is. So not colour vision, just how light or dark something is. Um, so we do know a lot of predators use that for motion or pattern um, recognition. So that would make sense if there's something going on as the beetle moves 
um, that's causing light and dark flashes and the predator's using its, its luminance vision to try and detect it, it could disrupt um, how well they could detect or localise the prey. Maybe they could see it, but they might not be able to strike at it as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it, it might be like yeah. it's there and then it's kind of gone. It's like, oh, it's there again and then you're yeah. trying to find it. Exactly, yeah. Almost like um, squid when they release ink and they kind of confuse the predator and they jet off in a different direction and so it's it gives them the second to get away. Yeah, right. So when are you, when is your lab going to make 1500 um, motorized versions of the beetles? That sounds like the next step. I uh, know. I think our whole life's still scarred, even though it was over a year ago. <laughs> I don't think we have enough new members yet that I could convince them, could convince them to do that. <laughs> Just as you get more people, don't tell them about what happened last time. And then, yeah, it started all over again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've worked on squid before as well, right? Because just because you mentioned squid just now. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. 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 That's why I thought of the squid um, thing. The squid one is actually pretty cool. So the squid, that well, these are dumpling squid, which I used to work on. I assume other squid do this too, but they uh, would go dark and then they release the ink and then as they jet away they go really light sandy color so your eye thinks they're going to be dark and you get focused on the ink but they've changed to a sandy color in the meantime and then you lose them and it works i would lose them often when they do that that's really cool cool. yeah so where do you spend most of your time when you're working is that in the field or the lab or the office or combination a bit of a combination at the moment a lot more in the office and the lab Um, so I'll be doing uh, lots of microscopy and micro CT which are like scans to get an idea of the structure of the eye Uh, so that'll all be lab work for winter and then as soon as spring comes around that's beetle season and so then it's lots more field work going out collecting beetles till end of summer so that's my favorite part but the lab stuff is still pretty interesting. And then where do you go to collect all these beetles? Is it just roaming around Melbourne or do you travel extensively across Australia to find beetles? I, I try to travel um, until the borders get shut down on me. But <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this year's been tricky because this year I was trying to do um, a project where we get a lot of different beetles from um, like really different ecologies and across different subfamilies so that they're not very closely related. So needed to sample pretty broadly, um, which we still managed to do because I have lots of really helpful people interstate who helped me collect beetles. But we go, uh, there's lots of places around Melbourne where you can find beetles on tea tree um, from about uh, probably November, maybe a little earlier. Uh, And then if you go to more uh, deserty type places or like Mallee regions, then you start to find some other really cool ones, some bigger ones. Um, that's more heat of summer. So it can get pretty, pretty hot in the field. My favorite was definitely going to WA, um, at the start of last year, just to the Goldfields region, which I think is about four hours east of Perth. And we got super lucky. They were just it was a bumper year for beetles and I just had, I, it was more than I could ever imagine. You would go up to one tree and it was absolutely swarming with beetles and they were big too, like seven centimetres long. And, and oh, geez. Yeah. They sound like little helicopters as they were around. I think we got 
in total, we collected about 24 different species, but on a single tree, you could have maybe 15 different species and heaps of individuals and they did not care about you at all. You could walk <laughs> right up to the tree. It was amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Sounds like a very fun study subject just for the, just for that. Just the fact you can approach without any, like knowing they're not going to fear you. Yeah, it was amazing. I couldn't imagine it beforehand. People had told me about it, but I was like, nah, we won't. That's just something that happens every now and again. And I mean, it doesn't happen every year, but I never thought we would get to see it. And I didn't think they wouldn't fly away when we walked right up to them. You could pick them off the tree if you wanted. <laughs> wow. It's, it's just so unfair. I, I get why people turn to entomology when you get stories like that. It's like, yep, that makes sense. That sounds like the best study subject ever. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I've always been reasonably lucky with finding study species um, or maybe it's just persistence. I don't know, but this one has definitely been the easiest one to find. Um, this kind of actually purposely brings it into one of our favorite questions is um, we love getting scientists bad field stories or weird field stories or field fails or so. I was wondering if you have any kind of stories for us. Uh, yeah. Um, so one that springs to mind is I used to work on stomatopods or mantis shrimp. Um, you might've heard of them for their really complex vision and um, bright colors. And so I was the only person in the lab who worked on mantis shrimp. So I had to work things out myself, work out where to find them. Um, I mean, I didn't do it by myself. I spoke to uh, other labs and other people who were experts and read a lot of papers, um, but I didn't have guidance in my lab. And the first time I went to the field, um, I was snorkeling, trying to find some, and I found one, but it was in this giant rock and I just couldn't get it. So I kept looking and I got super excited when I found one in a little rock. And so I knew uh, what you're supposed to do is take the rock and then you can smash it open and then the, the shrimp will come out. And so I was, I was going to do that. I was worried about, um, you know, squishing the, the shrimp as I smashed it open with the little, like the mini pickaxe. And for some reason I decided to do it on the pier and I watched my first stomatopod come out, wriggle a little bit and then fall in the water and swim away. And I never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> it was so disappointing. Yeah. I just like how prepared you were and how perfectly it should have gone and you just not chosen the pier. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I could, there's a whole wet room inside, which is where I did it after that. I don't know why I did it on the pier. <laughs> did it get better from there though? Yeah, it did. Um, I think I only found a couple on that trip, but then after that I started working out um, how to, how to spot where they are and, um, test if they're actually there. So I guess they are in coral rubble. It's always dead coral and they're in little holes in it. And you start to notice that the holes they like are always reasonably a good, like a pretty good circle and reasonably clean, clean around the outside. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's stuff algae over the top, there's usually not one in there. And then if you get a little piece of wire and stick it in, they'll punch it. So <laughs> then you know that they're there. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Yeah, when, when Debbie was on, we talked, I think, quite a bit about um, mantis shrimp. They're just such cool species. They're amazing. Yeah. They're, they're just so weird. They're very hard to study in terms of 
colour and communication because we, we have some idea how they're processing light, but really not not very much at all. Yeah. Does the punching become an issue when you're studying them as well? Like can they can they, they break an aquarium or anything like that? Yeah, that, I guess that's not a field work fail. That's a lab fail. They, I had three <laughs> aquariums or four aquariums break. Actually happened. Wow. Yeah. And they really liked smashing the thermometers I had in the tank. So I had, <laughs> I have a picture. I kept them all. I think I had um, about seven thermometers smashed that they broken throughout my time. Seriously? There's a, t- a hit of the temperature. I want to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh that's really cool yeah really quick um just in general um where can people find your work and read about stuff you're doing i'm on twitter uh that's probably where i post most stuff about my work and especially field work uh which is at neps n-e-p-t-s necklace uh so i don't know if you've heard of the marine the algae neptune's necklace so it's based on that it's the it's the round bubbly one that you see all along the coast in australia oh cool yes um yeah so mostly mostly twitter and then i have a a web page on the university web page so if you search my name it would just come up awesome and uh i i had to add this or mention this because i was searching for things you've done um i came across your blog um, that oh, has not been updated awesome. since 2017. And it made me so happy that the last post you had was just a article from a newspaper saying squid sex marathons take a toll. <laughs> I just love that you decided that, you know, I'm done. The blog's done. I, I peaked. This article peaks and I'm now done with this. <laughs> Full mic drop. <laughs> oh, I didn't know, but I'm pretty glad I ended on that too. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know that was still up, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So our listeners may or may not be able to find this blog if they look for it now. (laughs) Yeah. I'll leave it there. You should leave it there. It should should live there forever. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I can restart it one day. Have to be something pretty damn good, though, to trump that. (laughs) Just wait for another weird Beatles sex marathon post or news article. (laughs) That's what the mirrors are actually for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, seriously, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. No, thanks for having me. That was great. Great fun. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, see where the uh, mirror stuff goes next. If you're creating more little toys to throw out into the environment and see what attacks it or doesn't attack it. Yeah, I would love to do that. Only to see, see who I can convince. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Dr. Amanda Franklin for taking the time to chat with us and Pint of Science Australia for putting us in touch. Remember, you can find Amanda on Twitter and we'll post some links to Amanda's work on your website and in episode notes. Thanks for listening. Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Allsbrook and Farley Connolly with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer, David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin-Yaw, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.